it's funny. People always be like, don't forget about the little people. It's like, why do they refer themselves as little anyway, you know? Why don't you just get big with me? Feel me? They can see it in my eyes. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of John's Entitled Podcast. I am your host, John. This week's guest is a bit of a trip for me to actually say, but it's it's Steve Evitz. Uh, he is a producer extraordinaire, in my opinion. Uh, the dude has been doing some classic records for about 25 years now. And if you're not familiar with his work, he's probably done some of the records that you have grown to love over the last two decades, almost approaching two and a half. Steve has done everything from Every Time I Die, The Big Dirty, and New Junk Aesthetic, to Hate Breeds, Satisfaction is the Death of Desire, some death metal bands from back in the early 90s. He's done all of the Dillinger Escape Plan records. Um, He's done a handful of Static Lullaby records. Uh, He's worked with Ross Robinson, which is another big name in the production game over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, working on Cure Records, or A Cure Record, I should say, sorry. Uh, he's worked with Limp Biscuit doing The Unquestionable Truth, which is uh, arguably probably one of my favorite uh, Limp Biscuit records that doesn't get a lot of love or attention. Uh, as you'll kind of hear me say in this, this conversation, um, it's interesting to see that so many people have always wanted Limp Biscuit to go back and do $3 Billy All as far as the production and raw sounding record. And to me, that's what The Unquestionable Truth more or less really was. Uh, and it was also the first record they did with uh, Wes being back in the band. And there was just some interesting stuff going on with that record. It, it sounds really raw. Uh, unfortunately, it, it just didn't have any press or promotional push behind it. And ultimately, I think that is what led to the album or the EP not doing so well. Um, but when I found out that Steve was a part of that process. I, I knew I had to at least kind of talk about that and bring it up. And coincidentally, he ended up uh, telling me something that I didn't even know about that record, which, I mean, is the great thing about a podcast is you, you learn things uh, sometimes and talking to people. Um, I always had perceived that EP to have no press, no making of or anything like that. At the time, Limp Bizkit was really good at always having like a documentary or a making of, of a lot of the records they've been putting out at that point and having a strong digital online presence with a lot of these things and it was really weird to me that they there was just nothing in that regard for the making of the unquestionable truth and steve as he ends up telling me uh there is actually a making of i think it's like in three or four parts uh but if you search uh the unquestionable truth making of on google uh it does pop up the 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 thing and wow there is some shit that happens in that in that, uh, that I definitely was not aware of. I mean, everyone knows that there was kind of a tumultuous time for the Limp Bizkit camp, uh, going into, you know, West leaving and then him coming back and just kind of a lot of stuff. I mean, they were basically broken up for a little while there before Wes even rejoined the band when they still had Mike Smith from Snot in the band. And it was interesting to just kind of see, like, there is obviously, as you will see if you watch this, this making of, John Otto was kicked out of the band. There was a, a completely different drummer on that record uh there's there's kind of little pieces with Wes and and Fred uh all kind of talking about the problems that they were having with John leading into the recording of that that EP and 
it was really interesting for for Steve to kind of bring that up and me not even be aware of any of that kind of stuff and the interesting thing though and I, I think we kind of said this in the interview and during the chat itself was that it if you go back and listen to the unquestionable truth there does seem to be a little bit of animosity kind of coming through like just kind of some some headbutting uh between members and I think it it to me adds to the greatness of that EP uh, I think I do generally think that that is a, is a great sounding record. It has great songs. Uh, some of the stuff that Wes is playing on there, uh, as I have tried to learn how to play it on guitar, like he's using some really interesting tunings and he's doing some really interesting things like phrasings and stuff so forth. Uh, I mean, I mean, just looking at the song, the truth. I mean, the bridge section of that going into the little like lead run in the verses into that just kind of walloping chorus riff. I mean, there's there's a little bit of something there, I think, for everybody, and, and I think once you start learning how to play someone else's stuff, sometimes you're able to see what's really going on and kind of break down something that sounds so simple, but it's it's so complex. And I think that's something really to be said with a lot of the bands that Steve works with. There's a lot of stuff that may seem very simple, and as Steve said multiple times throughout our conversation, uh, that sometimes the the job of the producer is just knowing when to get the fuck out of their out of the way of the band to let them do something great and just kind of let them shine and uh i think steve's done that a ton throughout his career Uh, i mean almost anything with dillinger i mean i think is a great example of that um interestingly enough though in setting up this conversation because it it took a little while um a couple of months to get set up just because of steve's busy schedule but what was very interesting is I've talked about Evitz on this podcast a couple of times. Uh, I've had a few people that he's worked with. And interestingly enough, I woke up after getting kind of tanked at my cousin's wedding to an email from Steve saying he was checking out the episode with Josh Newton. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and re-listen to that because that was a fun chat with, with uh, Josh as well. And Steve emailed me and I kind of looked at my phone in disbelief that it was actually Steve Evitz. <laughs> And so I was very timid about trying to get him on the podcast because uh, I didn't want to just be like, oh, be on my podcast. Um, but that's immediately what I was thinking because, I mean, the dude's just phenomenal and I love a lot, almost all of his work. Uh, so I, I just kind of played it cool. We, we chatted and exchanged some emails. And then I saw that he was on Doc Coyle's podcast, the uh, the X-Men podcast. Great podcast as well. Hoping and would love to get Doc on this and, and kind of maybe talk about the parallels between music and sports. Um, since he's an avid sports fan like myself, especially basketball right now. Um, but regardless. And I kind of felt like I missed my opportunity. And then Steve was on Noise Creators podcast and while that was more of the gear tech kind of side of things of of steve's job of being a producer uh i I was like ah shit he's doing all the podcasts like fuck i kind of missed my opportunity um so i reached out to him and i was like dude fuck it like would you like to be on my podcast and he was like yeah surprisingly and and apparently had wanted to to just ask to be on it but thought it would be a, a bit presumptuous uh so i was really taken aback that uh someone like steve actually listens to to this podcast or has checked out a few episodes with people that he may be more familiar with and i don't know it's just kind of crazy like i think that just kind of speaks to like i said a couple of podcasts or probably have said a few different times across the year of doing this is you know i just do this in my fucking 
quote unquote office looking at nobody talking to no one typically and the last thing I think of is anyone actually legitimately listening to this let alone people that I've admired and looked up to within the music industry business whatever for a very long time so if you have something some whimsy thing that you want to do a random podcast or a business or something fucking do it man like this is kind of a shining example of you never know who your 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 art or work is going to reach um so this is on the bit of the longer side uh for sure Evans and I ended up talking for about two hours and I think the edits even with the edits to this I think it's still going to be about an hour and 40 minutes or so so it's a little bit of a longer check so I'm going to kind of end up uh cutting this one a little bit short but uh if you are interested more in talking about or hearing Steve talk more about the the lineage of his career to a degree uh like I said go check out Doc Coyle's X-Men podcast and if you're more into the tech gear talk uh go check him out on the noise creators podcast uh this one I kind of wanted to to do something that was sort of right in the middle of the two where I don't really talk a whole lot about the gear uh and I'm not necessarily going through you know in the beginning of your career you did this and then we're going to take you all the way through all the way to now it was i kind of wanted some more stories of certain things so like you know with hate breed celebrating 20 years of satisfaction i wanted a little bit more you know being able to look back on the making of that record and with dillinger calling it a day like you know what was it like working with the band being like the only producer to have worked with them uh and so on and so forth and surprisingly as much as i probably wanted to talk about every time i die uh, I really didn't, which maybe another time I can get him back on and we'll delve more into those records uh, between The Big Dirty and New Junk Aesthetic. Um, but I did find out that he played bass on The Big Dirty, which was still an awesome record. And uh, I think between those two records, I think it was kind of a weird transition uh, for the band that fans seemingly like it, but it's also a record that seems to be de uh, divisive as well. So, uh, without further ado, we're going to get into this chat with Steve Evitz. Let's roll into it so I can get you out in time to go see Star Wars. <laughs> I will not. I'm going to the late show. Oh, okay. And you know, the funny thing is I'm staying off the internet because right now, <laughs> like it's right now, it's literally like the first showing on the East coast okay. as we speak. And like, I just, I'm not going to, I, you know, like I'm not even that crazy thing, but I just hate, I want to enjoy the experience just like anything. And just now in the age of the internet and everybody just tries to like, ruin everybody's like nobody can have their own experience to anything no and that's in art in general and everybody has a comment and everybody does you know what i mean so it's like i'm going there my i have an 11 15 the 11 15 show i'm gonna roll up there it's down in long beach about close to where i live so it's like about 20 minute drive here from the studio i am gonna go right there like right before since i have a reserve seat and I'm going to put my iPod, or I'm going to put my headphones on and put music on and walk up in line so nobody can <laughs> shout anything on the way out. Right. 
and because I'm going to be so pissed if somebody spoils it for me. And like I said, I'm not like this crazy like duh, I'm a crazy Star Wars nerd. I love Star Wars, but I'm Just not like this. I want the experience. I want to enjoy it. I don't want somebody to ruin it for me. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, I have the pleasure on the eve of Steve Evitz going to see the new Star Wars movie to have him sit down with me and chat. Thank you for taking the time. It feels like it was a long time uh, getting this to finally happen. Finally happening, but yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and give credit to two podcasts that you've already been in the last little bit. Uh, Doc Coyle's The X-Men Podcast, and I'm kind of bad with switching. It's the noise creator, the content creators, which, what is it again? noise creators. It's noise creators. Jesse Cannon's uh, company. Yes. Uh, yeah. So with those two podcasts having come out very recently, uh, I would refer anyone to go to those if you would like more of a kind of generic, broad-spectrum interview with you. Uh, I, there are things that are talked about in those podcasts that I kind of wanted to delve a little bit more deeper into. Uh, before we do that, though, I would like to talk to you a little bit about what you just came back from Philadelphia for. Uh <laughs> You had sent in an email that you go to Philadelphia to go be back with your dad and family, and mm-hmm. you help sell socks. <laughs> I do. It's my father's company. He's got a. He makes socks, and uh, it's a trade show. He works every year in Harrisburg, PA, uh, and uh, he's getting up there. He's uh, seventy-seven and still working. Um, he'll probably work until literally until it's time to pull the plug that's just uh, how my dad is i'm kind of the same way i'm a little bit of a workaholic like that um but uh yeah i don't get to see him that much since i'm here in california and he's there in south jersey so uh once a year i i go out to help him for like a week-long thing i fly out and and i take off my producer hat and put on a badge and sell socks (laughs) do you find that it's nice to to get away from like maybe the hustle and bustle of uh the big city out in California and, and kind of your day-to-day job and kind of do something completely different? Yeah. I mean, look, I grew up around it. So, you know, I, uh, I, I, it's not like I'm unfamiliar with the family business, you know, <laughs> uh, and I'm actually uh, going to help him because my dad is still like, he's such a Luddite. He's like, you know, phone orders only like, you know, like kind of thing, <laughs> like, you know, like even like mail-in orders from like, 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 these like hunting and fishing expos and like because it's mostly like stuff for like outdoorsy it's like all wool kind of socks okay so it's geared towards like the the hunting and fishing outdoor kind of crew hiking whatever and uh so i'm actually going to help him get a website going for real and kind of get into the digital age a little bit (laughs) (laughs) he's like oh you know he's excited he's like oh my god you really you can make all this i'm like yeah dad you know if we get you an amazon store you're gonna make you're gonna do all right because the product is his his product is really good i mean it smokes anything you can buy at rei he's just so like word of mouth kind of guy though interesting it was it was one of the last things i was expecting to <laughs> get in an email yeah. that, uh, hey i'm in philly selling socks well, well i was helping. passing through philly i was in philly actually just to uh, you know, I flew in and out of Philly and we drove from Philly to Harrisburg or whatever. And, and, uh, and then I spent the, the last day I, I, we finished up and we drove back and I stayed in Philly overnight and I saw Liam from Dillinger. I have so many friends cause I grew up in South Jersey, uh, central Jersey, but you know, like being in part of that whole scene and like worked with a lot of Philly hardcore bands over the years back in the day. And, you know, so many friends like in Philly and Liam from Dillinger, was in Philly and all the Wonder Years guys. They're all in this one area called Fishtown. 
which is like this up and coming section now. It's like kind of the hipstery part of Philly. Right. So I got to see uh, Casey from the Wonder Years, and I got to hang out with Liam all afternoon. It was great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so you had mentioned on the other podcast that when you were in your band that ended up getting signed to a smaller label that mm-hmm. the goal always was to get big enough to where you could buy a studio that was you always wanted to be a producer I, which... oh, well produce i didn't really at that point i didn't know producer i just i wanted to be the guy in the record i wanted to be in a recording studio what i like recording that what spurned that from such an early age um i think it was well one it was just not even knowing about it. It was just like I found an old reel-to-reel webcore tape recorder in my parents' attic because um, people used to be able to, like, instead of having cassettes, they would make home recordings with, like, a, re- a little reel-to-reel, this little microphone that, like, you know, it's stored in the lid and it had this little cable, you know. Right. So I would, like, just make recordings with that and, like, uh, uh, record my sister playing piano and whatever, not knowing what I was doing, but I just thought it was just neat and I liked it. And then kind of like, you know, being growing up uh, and my parents were big Beatles fans and listening to the Beatles recordings, it was it was about like that, you know, it was, um, you know, like listening like with the old Beatles recordings, especially the, the ones, you know, in the ones in the US, which were stereo mixes, because the original all the original recordings of the Beatles up until uh, Abbey Road were mono recordings and they made stereo mixes as an afterthought so that's why i always like you always see like it seems like a production trick now where it's like oh the drums are on the one in one speaker the drums are on the left and the vocals are on the right like some but it was like they didn't even know what to do with stereo at the time they're just like i don't know put the drums over here put the vocals over here it's it's, you know so it comes out of different speakers so it's you know but i had the this this panasonic um stereo that i inherited from my parents and you could flip the switch to mono. There was the mono slash stereo. And if people don't know what that is, mean mono meaning like all the sounds coming out of one speaker. Right. Like, I mean, original recordings, like people would listen to this stuff. It was just there was no stereo. There was no two speakers, no left and right. It was one speaker. And they would make great sounding recordings just in mono. So you could take this Panasonic thing and you flip it to either mono or stereo. And if you put it to mono, there was actually a separate volume knob for the left and right speaker. But if you put it to mono, it would still come out of both and you could actually just turn down the left channel. So I could actually like, you could mix almost like on the Beatles recordings, like, oh, I could turn off the drums. I can make the drums lower and just look. And so it was like, it just, that kind of stuff always fascinated me. Like, why are they doing that? Why, what's the point, you know? And you kind of like discover like hidden little things when you just listen to the vocal track by itself. And Did you ever end up making your own little versions of different stuff? over the years no well you know the fun when i then i was playing i discovered you know in high school i started playing keyboards and then i played bass and then i got a four track a little cassette fostex four track that uh i took like a i cashed like a savings bond i got from a bar, my bar mitzvah <laughs> like literally and like and bought a four track and then i started recording my own band and i started then i was like oh you know like that's what really piqued my interest and then again you know playing in bands and everything and it was just like man I, I started getting like a little bit of a home setup and but it was like yeah the always the be all end all was like i hope the band 
as I said, I'm Doc. So I, I hope the band gets big enough that I can I can own a recording, you know, own a recording studio. Just always kind of fascinating me because of the fact that typically, especially back then, it's not like it is now where people can have laptops and their own kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, you didn't necessarily hear about until a band got super big. To me, that I remember, you didn't really hear about people having any kind of home recording stuff at all. Um, right. So the fact that you know you've always kind of like not pioneered that you've always uh talked about how you that was always your end goal was kind of interesting just that's not something you heard a lot of people aspire to, yeah, to I mean be there's, back then. there right. were certain people the very forward thinkers such as um Bill Stevenson and Stephen Egerton from all when they got their deal with Interscope after the descendants uh they basically took their advance and Instead of spending it on a on a studio and a producer, they built the blasting room, and you know that was very forward thinking of them back then. And they still have the studio to this day, you know. So it's like they make their own records for free, right? And and also then when they're not, you know, being in the band or whatever, now they're not near, nearly as. Uh, I mean, Descendants aren't really, you know, that active. I mean, they play somewhat, but like. You know, they don't tour year round, but they, you know, Bill, Bill, you know, produces records all year round, which is great. Speaking to some of the records that you have made over the years in listening back to a lot of stuff over the last, I mean, you've been recording, uh, I think you said 25 years now, roughly. <sighs> yeah. And I realize that's about yeah. seven or eight years less than I've been alive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, at, this, at this point, looking back at your career, you've always kind of had a knack for being involved in what the sort of underground scene was at the time mm-hmm. and being able to work with what would become legendary acts on legendary, almost genre-defining albums. I mean, at this point, Hatebreed right now is currently on tour in celebration of 20 years of satisfaction of the, is the death of desire, which is still mm-hmm. a mouthful to say. Um, <laughs> and... You know, I'm looking back through your discography, and you know, you have like Snapcase, and I mean, your your thing just reads like a greatest hits, and it's like that was the beginning of your career. Did it? Did you uh, know? It wasn't the very very beginning. That was like the where it really kind of started to get some get a lot of steam. Like ninety six, ninety seven. That's kind of where it really picked up. It actually, I could you know, like early early on, it was like incantation. Like that was my first record I ever produced was Incantation, because um, there was a death metal, metal stuff. I think if I remember, there was correctly. a death metal scene in Jersey, and <laughs> Incantation. Yeah, they came. They came over. You know, I just I didn't even know heard of them. You know, they, I did a seven inch split with them with the band Mortician as well, and um, and then we did the full length, and that was like the first record I ever produced. And then the second record I ever produced was Mod Rhythm of Fear in 92 so but it was uh, oh god oh god no go it's just uh, it where it took off was really i i honestly the defining point really was the dead guy record yes um that's where i mean i did the dead guys you know the, the, the seven inches the white meat and the and the uh uh and the ep also the work ethic ep was it was the which was the first two seven inches i did with the band mm-hmm uh and then uh they got picked up by this label called engine and we did that 
did work ethic released engine released work ethic and then we did fixation and it uh the label basically just had a hard time of paying they, they were i guess notorious for not paying people and they didn't pay the bill at tracks east and the master sat in the vault at tracks for a good like seven or eight months i think the album was just just sitting there unreleased we did it was sitting right there and then uh dave rosenberg the drummer for dead guy um knew tony over at victory and he's like yeah victory records is going to put out the record okay okay so then i did a record for victory without doing a record for victory right and that's what and then that was it that's what started the whole ball it was dead guy and then yeah and then by the grace of god snap case uh cause for alarm hate breed it's like all that stuff was like in like 96 97 98 99 it was like just like this big concentrated you know it's like 15 records for the label um yeah what i wanted to know though was and you, it seems like you've kind of done this throughout your career in, in almost like seemingly whenever there's kind of like a, a new thing coming in the underground, like kind of metal, hardcore community. It seems like you're always able to find like that one band or two bands and put out like, you know, a, a record that kind of really bring, either brings them back or kind of puts them in a launching point. Like with Hatebreed with, you know, they had already had uh, an album out before that. Nice, yeah. But it wasn't really until Satisfaction came out that people seemingly there was something that people gravitated to. And, you know, there was I remember even being very young at that point, there being a buzz about that record, that there was Mm -hmm. something that separates now Hatebreed from their contemporaries at this point and kind of put Mm -hmm. them on a level with a lot of the peers that they they grew up listening to. Yeah, I mean, it was just a, it was a question of just making sure it sounded the way it's it sounded the way it was supposed. I thought it was supposed to sound, and it had the impact that it was supposed to have. Because you listen to the under the knife stuff, and it's heavy and it sound it's cool, but it, I mean, it's sonically it's not. I mean, it's a very underground sound, but it's like, you know, I was always that thing of like when I, I loved it's like you know the fire and the energy of all like that hardcore the underground hardcore stuff in New York coming out of the East Coast. But it mostly sounded to me like shit. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I, I was like, I don't want it to, you know, like, and I, it's funny, I approached the recording of that stuff almost like where I came from, like the almost like, you know, more pop metal world. And I kind of would approach, make that approach with recording heavy music just to, just to really, so everything just had sounded big and punchy and had clarity and just had the right impact. And I think it's just like, it was always like to me to, you know, if you give it a clear, a wide berth and let it be what it's supposed to be, it's going to have more impact. And that's the way I, that's the way I always thought about it. Was it hard to kind of persuade some of the bands to kind of go that route with the, the producing and maybe the mixing and mastering if you ended up doing that? Because uh, that's not how the typical sound was. I mean, they were always generally, for the most part, people would hear a tone and they'd be like, I, I'd be like, let's try this and we'll make it a little, you know, and for the most part, everyone was always like, yeah, it's good. But also, you got to remember, most of those records, Hate Breed, that Satisfaction record we did in I think said nine, nine days, nine days. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 
there wasn't even time to think about it. I wasn't even thinking about it. It wasn't a conscious, necessarily a conscious decision. I was just like, that doesn't sound good. Let me let me make it better. And that's all it was. Okay. It wasn't okay. like I sat there and deliberated about how to make hardcore have the most impact. You know, it was just like <laughs> just a gut thing. And that's the way I still approach things. I try not to overthink anything, even though I'll have a bigger budget and we'll spend more time. But it's like it's always based on yes or no. Is this good? Yeah. No? Okay. You know, like simple flow chart shit, you know, it's like yes, proceed. No, start over, do something different, make it better, you know, and that's literally it. And like, you know, I didn't have time to, to think about any of that shit. We just plowed through it. We were just plowing like Snapcase, you know, first uh, progression, that was two weeks. And it was like, even for that, like, you know, like, the, like I remember seeing a EPK for that record. And like, I remember them talking about it. It's like, wow, we have two weeks to make a record. That's like a luxury. It's like, and it it was to to them, you know what I mean? When you consider that they did like looking less often, like probably under a week, you know. You know, so it's like, do you feel that being able to look back now, were you kind of aware of this scene, this this kind of changing of the guard as far as like some of these bands now becoming what they would be like did you feel that that was happening at the time and that it was something special or was it just kind I'm, of you're so involved in it that you can't really I'm so involved it? in it but you know there's definitely thing when we did the snapcase record i mean even when we did the dead guy record and that was that was done in seven days it was like five days tracking and like a two days mixing kind of thing um i it felt like something cool and dangerous and interesting and special to me even at the time i was into it you know what i mean like because well we did the other stuff the ep if you heard the earlier dead guy stuff i mean it's good but it's it's, it's definitely a, a it doesn't sound it doesn't have the same impact that we did on the you know on the fixation record well it's kind of funny you, you bring that up because that sort of leads into a, a couple of questions that sort of stem from that so mm -hmm throughout your career you've actually worked with some bands where you've worked back-to-back -back records like you got to do one like every time i die you did you know big dirty then you got to do new junk aesthetic static lullaby you did self-titled and rattlesnake and so forth well that wasn't back-to-back well no i right because i did three i did the i did don't forget to breathe i did the first one okay and they signed to to columbia and matt pinfield was their a and r guy and he decided to put it like a big a bigger producer quote unquote and and they wound up coming back to me for self title and then rattlesnake. Okay, I thought I remember that, but I was I knew for sure that you had done like those records, and I thought timeline wise they were back to back. Um, well, self titled and rattlesnake are back to back. Okay, all right. But don't forget to breathe was the very first one, right. which was a ferret, and then they got signed to CBS because of that record, and then I don't get to do the rec I don't get to produce the record for CBS. <laughs> um, but so when you get to work with a band back to back. Do you find that – and sorry, I'm kind of looking at my notes off to the side of me. Um, that do you enjoy being able to work with band on consecutive albums and build on what you previously have done? And if so, like, do you find that maybe there are some newer obstacles that working with a band on two consecutive albums presents that maybe – It can, sure, for sure, because it's – I love the – when you get familiar with, with the artists and, and, you know, and you almost develop kind of a shorthand because – there's a thing that you know you when you hit, when you really hit it off and have a good working relationship, 
you know, you know kind of what they're capable of. They know what you're expecting. So the second time around, it can be, it can, it can really work really, really well. It can work to a detriment because if you get too comfortable, that's, I don't think that's good either. I, I love the, the, the first one always generally <laughs> just because there's that newness and there's just like that excitement and like, you know, so, but I love, you know, also there, there's definitely a challenge with someone like, like them or, you know, the Wonder Years, I did three records with them. They're, they just finished a new record with a different guy. And they even said, I, and I was bummed. It was, wasn't that I was bummed that they're not using me. It was more about because I'm friends with all the guys and I didn't get to hang out with them for, you know, two months to make a record. Right. They were like, you know, we really kind of just wanted to be uncomfortable again, if that makes sense. I'm like, yeah, I get it for sure. You know, I always love working with them because it's always a great, great experience. But, you know, it's not it's never about, you know, like, look, I, I, I never forget how fortunate I am to do what I do. And I get to do this. I don't have to do it. You know, that's that's the that's the difference. And it's like um, it's just. Uh, yeah, it's never about me. It's about them. You know, it's there. I always say that to every band. It's like, it's not about me. It's about you. It's your record, you know, so. And kind of piggybacking off of that same question in reverse, has there ever been an album? Has there ever been an album of a band that you really wanted to work? Like, I know you didn't necessarily produce this. You worked with Ross Robinson on, on like the Glassjaw record. But to mm-hmm. me, like when you hear like worship and tribute, like, are you like, fuck, I wish I could have been on this and worked on this. Sure, of course. Are there any like examples, kind of, of like where you're like, man, like? Well, uh, actually, with speaking of that, like with Ross, uh, relationship of command, uh, because I worked with Ross with them to do the one song. It's actually on the now the the subsequent reissues of Relationship. Uh, it's a song called Catacombs. It's, I think it's the last song on the record, but that's actually the song that Ross and I recorded with the, the band. Uh, at the same studio, we mixed uh, Glassjaw, everything you ever wanted to know, actually. River Sound up in, in New York. The guy from uh, uh, Seely Dan, Donald Fagan, it was his studio. Okay. Um, and we tracked Catacombs there with the band. And then I wound up going off and doing Earth Crisis. So I wasn't available. And then Ross, you know, did did relationship but so it never worked out that I couldn't actually go out and do that record. And I, I wish I worked on that record with them because I just loved working with the guys. They were great. Just that one song was just awesome. It's always weird. I always wonder, like, you know, like when we talk about like a band like Cape Reed, it's like, okay, next album's Perseverance, which just takes them to like a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, like, do you, cause I often, I know sometimes like, and you talked about this on docs that, uh, I think it was when two, what is it? When two zeros become eight or when two eights become zero. Or I forget how that song title is. Two zeros. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get to lose a lot of credibility on that one. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll hold it to you. It's okay. But uh, it's one of those things where, you know, I know that a lot of in that story, you were talking about a song that got recorded, but had to be in this weird legal loop like tape because it was technically one labels thing and it came out subsequently oh, on a re- convictuoso. Yeah. Yeah. So I sometimes wonder if like when working with a band, you know, there's a song that maybe like they're jamming on or a couple of ideas and then they basically become songs on the, the next record that you don't get to work on. But you're like, I remember when that was just a, a thing we were all kind of working on and we just couldn't yeah, finish it. Well, you know, um, the, 
the last saves the day record I did, which was sound the alarm back in 2005, mm-hmm. there's, uh, like, a huge chunk of songs that we we recorded some of the basics or in demo form or just even the basic tracks for originally that they went up re-recording for the next record under the boards. Um, that were some killer, killer songs. And yeah, so yeah, (laughs) it's happened. It's definitely happened. Um, kind of going back and, and speaking to working with bands across multiple records, you have the unique, luxury i would maybe say of working with dillinger escape plan throughout the entirety of their career yep that's typically not something that a lot of producers get to do is to work with a band who's had a career as long as dillinger has and uh can i can go ahead i can think of a handful of guys in the like in, well, in the metal world i can think of one comes to mind because that was a huge iron maiden fan was martin birch who worked with the band you know, all the way from the second record, Killers, all the way through, I don't even remember which one it was, something in the 90s. So it was like, it was a good, it was a, it was probably about a 20-year span as well. Close to it, anyway. But not the entirety of the band's career. Not, the entirety of the band's <laughs> not like you're, you're, you're in like a rare air there. Yeah. But, well, I'm frozen. My face is frozen. Am I frozen? Can yeah, you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. You're frozen, though. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. I'm looking at my face, looking up, and it's like, I see you, and you're working totally fine. Oh, anyway. Technology. Um, yeah. But. Yeah, let me think... try and turn the camera off and on. Let's see if that helps. Okay. I still and... think it's funny that your photo for Skype is, I think, your same one from uh, MySpace. <laughs> is it? No. <laughs> I feel no, like yeah. it is. No, that was after MySpace. It was Facebook. That's actually taken in Vienna, Austria, when I was on in Europe with Dillinger in 09. Okay. So okay. it was post MySpace. Okay. Maybe that's where I recognize this from. Is still some form of social media. Um, but you know, we we're kind of speaking on on legacies and careers, and I kind of had wondered if potentially. Being able to look back, and I know it, you know, Dillinger's career's not done officially yet. We still got, I think, a couple of maybe a week or two left. Um, but have you been able to yourself look back and maybe think about how maybe their career has mirrored yours in any way, as far since you've worked with them so exclusively? Well, for sure, just because you know, when I first did the very first recording with them, when they were called Arcane. Um, that that was you know right around the times 97 so it was like right when my career was really starting to like actually pick up steam so yeah i mean it's you know you're talking about 20 years so it does of course if i'm with them the whole time it does mirror that mirror to a degree for sure could you look back on actually i guess before i say it like that when something i've wondered because i know and i'm putting maybe my own perspective on it and and the perspective of peers of who got into dillinger around the same time i did it's interesting to to think about how people who didn't necessarily like bands like that Mm -hmm. took to dillinger and and kind of it was like wow there's this crazy band that's i don't usually like this sort of grind noisy stuff but there's something about them there's this this thing that they have and i kind of had wondered when they came across to you as a producer, was it kind of hard to record them and, and make it to where people could actually 
differentiate the things that are happening within the music? No. Well, the thing is, and I've said this before to another to other people. I don't even know if I'm podcast, but people always people have asked me that before about like how do you understand what's going on? And it's like you got to remember, like that kind of there they basically invented a language, a musical language, so to speak. And I was there for the like inception of the language. So I spoke it from, you know, as it was developing and as it, they kept adding and embellishing onto it. So I was able to like basically come up to speed, ramp up to speed with them as they were doing it. So it doesn't feel, it feels normal to me. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, and you know, the original, the self-titled EP, I mean, like they came to me because I worked with dead guy. And there's a lot of there's a, there's definitely a few more than a few similarities to the on the original self-titled to because the original self-titled is not like it's it sounds like it's very much like in the vein of Dead Guy mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily blatantly rip it off but there's 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 <laughs> moments where it's like okay that's a little too close for comfort kind of thing but you know I was like oh these guys love that you know I heard it I was like you know they literally booked me because I uh, they booked Time and Tracks East because I did the Dead Guy record and. There was definitely parts of it, and then there there, there was a few things that show, showed their own thing, like the song Cleopatra Sling, and uh, it, it definitely had a had a they like put, did a little thing of their own, and then they came in and they got John Fulton on board, and they did the Under the Running Board EP and the Mullerbird and the opening track on it, and it was literally like because I was like, all right, Dillinger's back in, cool, this this will be fun, you know, and. It was like, like they they ripped into the Mellowbird, and I was like, okay, someone stepped it up a notch, you know. So it was it was a definitely like a shift that had happened, um, and uh, yeah, and then ever since, you know, that's that's where it, it it stemmed from. But again, I, you know, I was there from the beginning, so it's it's easier for me to to grasp it. And to, and to know where and, and and knowing where the origin of a lot of the stuff came from and at the time you know like when I was like in high school and learning how to play and everything like that I mean I was a huge metalhead but I also went through a a big like prog and fusion like phase and like I listened to stuff like Return to Forever and King Crimson and I, you know there's a lot of the genesis of what that stuff is. There's there's definitely elements of that that they incorporated into it. And uh, that's my cousin calling. Uh, sorry, that's fine. Um, and uh, so when I hear certain things, you know, like I would understand where that came from, and I was like, okay, this this uh, this is like King Crimson, except sped way the hell up, you know. <laughs> But I, but I, but I would, I knew, uh, you know, and I got into like a lot of, like I said, a lot of prog rock and I, I would understand like a lot of the, the complex, the compound timing signatures thing, like one person playing in, in five, one person playing in seven. And then, you know, together, like 30 measures down the line, they all hit together and it ends at the same time, like stuff like that. Um, like I got that, but you know, again, if you just slow, if you slow it down, mm-hmm you would hear the similarities, but it's just so fast, you know, that it sounds like a blur. And I would always tell the people, like, it just sounds like a bunch of noise. And I'm like, no, no, there's every note. There's there a reason 
is there for a reason. There's an intention behind it all. Right. Might not hear it because it's just flying by you at the speed of light, but like it's actually there's actually a design. There's a design to everything. I've often so, wondered what is it like hearing all these songs without the crazy performance <laughs> behind these things, because obviously they're not recording them like they are playing it. So you're probably getting the most subdued version of these songs that will be being played. Uh, no, because I try to make sure it's still cap. That's the idea is I'm trying to still make sure it captures that thing you know like even like stuff like where you know like you know like i do it for a lot of people they're they're in the studio and they you know it's like all right grab a chair i'm like why why are you sitting down playing guitar well i want to make sure i play right i'm like right because you use a chair on stage right (laughs) you know like nope stand up put a strap on feel the music don't look at the screen like you know all that stuff because none of that crap mattered. None of that, you don't do any of that crap live. So why the hell are you doing it in the recording studio? Interesting. Because typically you see people sitting down when they're tracking uh, all their instruments, typically, when you see, like, DVD stuff. But now exactly. that you say that, I thinking back to exactly. the instant DVD, but... I can think of Andy and Jordan actually standing and playing yep. at Josh. So, mm-hmm. interesting. I didn't didn't put that together until just now. I mean, I you know, there's there's moments where I'll have people sit for a spot or two, but in general, I'm just like, man, just try it. Stand up, like I said, and that, that's immediately my argument. I, I just like, I just that's my the quickest way to shut it down. Like, I gotta sit. I'm like, right, because you're gonna bring a chair out when you play live. Cool. <laughs> All right. Sweet. If so, you are, you're Robert Fripp. That's great. But you know. <laughs> you know. So something I had kind of wondered with, uh, and kind of wrapping up on the Dillinger stuff. Yeah. Obviously, when when Disassociation was coming out, the it was being touted that this is the end of Dillinger. Uh, you know, in this day and age, you can't say forever. Uh, but yeah, exactly. And I think even Greg and them have said kind of the same thing. Like, oh, you know, in a couple of years, we might decide to pick it back up. But you know, for now, we're done. Um, so with knowing that Disassociation was going to be the last record. Did you go into this record with a, a completely different approach at all, since it was going to be kind of your last potentially Dillinger record? You no. Know, well, you know, it's, I mean, I knew it going in, like when we started tracking, Ben told me. So, and I was sworn to secrecy, obviously, right. until it came out. Um, and uh, I didn't, I mean, I just had to, I just had to like, you got to think the same thing. I mean, like you think about like, uh, you know, whoever, like, you know, I'm a huge baseball fan. Like I remember when like Derek Jeter was, you know, going to retire. It's like, he still (laughs) approached the game every day the same way. You can't just go around just thinking like it's the, you know, last hurrah. You still got a, you still got a job to do. There's still plenty of people that do that, especially in sports. It seems. Yeah, no, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, I, I <laughs> we didn't want to make it a victory lap, and there's there's still things that, like, you know, you know, people would just. I, I used, I'm always a believer in, you know, you got to put put in the effort and put the work in um, for the recording. I'm not a big like cut and paste guy. I I want to like you got to play everything. It's got it's got to feel right. It doesn't have to be perfect. I don't like perfect. Perfect perfection sucks the perfection is boring a lot of metal now is way too perfect sounding and it's just it doesn't excite me it doesn't have any feel there's no push there's no pull it doesn't make you feel anything it's just kind of like it just goes by and it's just like flatline like so 
I'm I'm a big fan of uh, just putting in the work. Right. It's funny. I'm always reminded of Garth Richardson, or if I have to put the five Gs or whatever in front of it. Yeah. Uh, sure. But I remember reading an article when Chevelle was coming out with their first record and hearing that somewhere in his studio there's like a sign that says "fuck live," and it's it's about the record. And I was like, it's not. There should be a better balance because it's like these people are going to well, leave the studio and perform these songs for potentially two years. So, like, you should think about the live, not necessarily just, like, the record. For sure. The genesis, the the, 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 the basic, the foundation of it should always be live. And that's the way I always try to approach tracking. Um, but I I think his, I think that, that sign is not about that. I think it's about, you know, as far as, like, maybe, like, adding some certain elements or, or going beyond your boundaries of what in the live situation. I don't know. I don't know what, what the thought process is behind. I know, I know Garth not very well, but I know him to a degree. I don't know where, what the concept is behind that, that sign. But to me, it's always um, the, the origin of whenever I do anything, when we're tracking, even if we're overdubbing guitars later, the origin is still, um, guys playing in the room with the drummer like together and even the vocals and everything um it has to be like that because i i don't never understood guys certain producers who i won't name who track drums like last they could they track guitars to a click and they track drums afterwards it's like so backwards and bizarre to me i don't understand it and you know more power to them if they get the result they want but it's not the result that i would ever be happy with um, it's always weird when I hear about things like that. It's got to sound like a real band. Right. It's got to be a real band. <laughs> you know, when I just did that new record with the Butcher Babies, um, they were like so blown away by that process that we actually like did pre-production for like a week. Like the band actually rehearsed and they, the band actually knew the songs going into the studio. And it was the first time they did it. They're like, normally we have to like leave the studio and then learn our record and learn how to play it. I'm like, that's so fucking bizarre to me. Like, I can't believe it. And they were like, they even said to me, I just saw them just uh, uh, beginning of the week. They played here in Orange County at the observatory. And they were like, when we went to rehearse for the tour, like, the songs. It was like, what a concept. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of liked your uh, the thing you were saying on Doc's podcast about how you wish like a band could tour two years on, like really get that record where they just know it. So when they come in, they could just bang it out. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, you know, I do in a concentrated kind of boot camp style for pre-production. Generally, I spend anywhere from, you know, eight days to two weeks uh, on pre-production where the band's rehearsing and playing together. And we'll, we'll you know, we'll... Uh, usually do it like where it's like we do like a song or two a day and like get it all tight get the band playing together and then the next day we add on two more songs and then rehearse all four and the next day and so on and so forth and then by the end like for the last few days we're like playing the the album playing the set right like so they really are like you know in there they're in it when they're so when it comes time to track it's like there's not there's no i mean there's still i still leave room for i like surprises in the studio i like not like oh everything has to be exactly how we rehearsed it but it's like all of a sudden somebody does something interesting it's like whoa what was that that was awesome like keep that great you know like i 
but I I like it to for it to be like you know just like anything you know Dan would rehearse for tour, why don't they rehearse for the record like like really rehearse for the record? It seemed like common sense. It's it's but all this stuff is not rocket science. It's all common sense. Yeah. Um, speaking. Well, there's really not speaking to that, but again on Doc's podcast, you talked about working with Ross Robinson over the years on on various projects. Yeah. Something as you were talking about working at Olympic Studios while you were working on the Cure record mm-hmm. was you were talking about how you knew that someone that Robert Smith had worked with <laughs> so long ago that he mm-hmm. happened to have one of the consoles or the mixing boards or whatever that you wanted to use and that mm-hmm. he was like one of two people that had one and that he just recently he wasn't one of two people to have one he there was one of two of those consoles that particular console the emi mark IV. is only two in existence okay mike hedges owned one of the two okay and so the fact that it's like that you knew that and were able to then put that knowledge to use for the cure record that you were working on yeah you... i'm kind of a big dork with that kind of stuff. <laughs> i was gonna say do you find that like you that having that knowledge actually helps you a lot like knowing that like a specific piece of gear is something that you need and, and maybe who has it. Well, I, I mean, that was a, that was one of those serendipitous moments. That was like literally because we went to use, we were in, I don't know if I told the whole story, but yeah, we went, we did pre-production for the cure record downstairs in studio three or studio two, as it were. And there was an EMI, an old, a different EMI, a Mark three console, which they're, they're still very rare, but there's more of them in the world than two there's there's <laughs> a handful of them um and it was there and because i was just like and it was under like covers and i'm like i and i knew what i knew about the console because i have some gear from this company called channel limited who who recreates some of the emi gear and i was like but this is like the, the real original one and i've only seen pictures and i just like i was just like i see we're outside the studio and i, I poke underneath the the tarp and i'm like oh my god and I tell us, and he didn't know because he doesn't. He try he he chooses to remain blissfully ignorant about recording and gear and stuff like that. He knows stuff that's good, but like he he by choice he wants to just only be about performance and not not about any technical stuff. But I was like, oh dude, we got to use this, and like we so we liberated this thing. We literally it's just like we liberated. We brought it into the studio and we started using. It. And he was like, oh my god, this thing's incredible. So then. We were supposed to do the record, the main record, not at Olympic, but at, at Air Studios, which is George Martin, uh, his uh, in Piccadilly Circus, his studio. We were going to go there, and but we we're like, we have to stay here so, so we can use his EMI desk. So we go, we we booked the time up, we changed everything around, we booked the time upstairs, and then they say, yeah, then they they tell us that the console is not available because uh, that guy Youth, he was using it. So, and then, and then I literally, it popped into my head from like a tape op, which is a, a recording geek magazine. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and I was like, Mike Hedges owns, has, he had a studio in France that he closed and he had that, the Mark IV console, the console, the dark side of the moon console. And I was like, and then, and I knew Mike Hedges produced the first two cure records. And yeah, I said to Robert, you still talk to Mike Hedges? And he goes, yeah. And I go. Yeah, can you call him? He's got one of those consoles. It's in storage, I know, because the studio closed like like six months ago. And then Ross is looking at me like, you freak, how do you know this? I'm like, I don't know. 
And literally two days later, the console was there. It's like crazy, craziest thing. Well, was it was it awesome working on something that you'd only seen pictures of in magazines? Mm-hmm. Well, I worked on you know the Mark III downstairs at the at, in pre-production, so I already knew. And Mark IV is, is the same, the same um, modules, but much bigger. It's like a, just a difference. It's this crazy little. I'm gonna send you a picture of it. It's like it's really crazy. <laughs> it's literally the console that that Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon was recorded and mixed on. So it was like that kind of history is like just too much, you know. I feel like I wouldn't even want to touch it. <laughs> I was, I got in there, man. I was right on that. Thing. I was like, yeah. <laughs> so with working with someone like Ross, who mm-hmm. even in in their own right is is a legendary producer, who has had his hands on, you know, records that we still talk about, you know, twenty mm-hmm. something, thirty something years later, almost at this point with some of these albums. What what do you gain by working with someone like him over the years? Uh, I mean, it's it's always great to know. I have I have a, a, a few really really close friends um, that are also producers, and it's it's always great to see just how someone else works. Different get just get different insights because you know it's like everybody's got their own process to a degree, you know, and it's just it's just it's very interesting to to see how. It is. And then like also to really be when I work with Ross, I'm obviously I'm just like the cure, just engineered and I mix the record. But like just to learn how to be a part of the process in a different way. And like, you know, there's things where I hear and it's like, you know, everybody and when you're talking about producing and, and that's in the creative aspect of it, not just about performance, but like there's so many aspects to producing. It's not just, you know, the Sonics. The Sonics obviously rel- falls in the realm of more of engineering, but there's also obviously the creative side for from the producer side for Sonics. But, you know, the producer side as far as, like, um, creativity, as far as, like, different coming up with different parts or different nuances or little, little, little things to sprinkle in there or dealing with the performance side of it. But and that's all all that stuff is that, you know, that's the creative side of it where that's open to interpretation. There's no wrong way. to. I mean, there could be a wrong way to do it. But then once it's not, I always say that there's a thing of the point of objectivity. Once you're past the point of objectivity and that goes with like mixes, too. It's like once it's not wrong, then what's right? There's a million ways it could be right. Right. So, you know. You know, and, I, and then to know and respect someone else's process, where I hear something and I go, "Oh, this part." Of my, of course, my brain's going. And like, this, this, this would be awesome if we did this here. We did this here. You know, but I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to let him. He's the producer. I'm going to let him do what he does, and I'm there to, in a different capacity, to support and just do whatever he, whatever he's requiring it to do. And who cares what I think? You know what I mean? If they have my opinion, I'll give it. But that's not my function there. Right. So it's it's interesting to step out of that. And then for like a good solid – it was funny because like in the middle of this – well, I say like 25 years, I mean as a producer, it's been probably a little under that because like for a good solid almost year and a half, I literally didn't produce right. and I, I engineered for Ross – and then like 2003 through like 2005 through, through like, like, like 
like win- early winter, late winter, 2005. So it was like very end of 2003, like December, 2003 through, through March of 2005 with the one exception of finishing Dillinger miss machine in the middle of the cure record. I finished, I literally was mixing the cure record. I flew back to New York straight from, from London not even going home. I went straight and I was living in Jersey still at the time. I flew from London, got on the plane, flew overnight, like flew, flew I left the studio at, at six, 5 AM London time, Monday morning. I slept on the plane. I went from the airport to quad studios in New York, started mixing Miss Machine, mixed that for two weeks, then went back to London for recalls for the cure. And then I went home. I never even went home. I like <laughs> that was the only, that was the one lone exception where I wasn't working for Ross or do or engineering. I mean, I you know when I mixed the record, I didn't really I wasn't working for Ross. Robert hired me to mix the record, and Ross wasn't even there. Um, but yeah, that was like the the lone exception because I went from the Cure. I did uh, you know again Dillinger went back, and then we went into Limp Biscuit. And then this other artist, Chase Pagan, who never actually wound up getting released for for Geffen as well, for Ross's label. So it was like those three records like in a row. And that was like the better part of like a year and a really fully year and a year and like four months. So you just mentioned a record that I really enjoy, or we'll call it an EP. It's an EP. It's an EP. <laughs> yeah. But it's a record that I've enjoyed, and actually it's kind of interesting. A, a kind of running theme for my podcast has been getting to talk about records that just seemingly never got any press. So therefore, it's like I get to ask questions that I always wondered and just never yep. existed. So with Limp Biscuit, you recorded – or you you were engineering while Ross was producing uh, The Unquestionable Truth Part 1. <laughs> now, that was the return of Wes. At that point, that was the first thing Wes came back and started jamming on. Yep. And I remember when the record came out, The Truth had a video, a very DIY raw shot video, mm-hmm. uh, and being blown away by the whole thing because it was unlike the records that had come out from basically Significant Other and on as the band progressed, just overproduced. It kind of went back to that $3 bill y'all sound that everyone said they wanted. But seemingly, when this came out, A, it sounds like even still, most people don't even know it exists, which is kind of weird because when you pull up iTunes or whatever, it, it's there. So I don't know why people... It's really strange. Like the, I remember hearing when it was, you know, when we were finishing it up that Fred was like, yeah, we're going to release it and not tell anybody about it. I was like, that seems... Count- time. That seemed, I mean, I guess that seems <laughs> seemed counterintuitive back then. I think it's you counterintuitive. Know, other people like drop... You know, you hear like Beyonce, like, oh, she dropped. I mean, that's a different thing. But it's like, oh yeah, she just dropped a record on everybody. It's like, what? You know. Yeah. But that's the thing. Like, she didn't tell anybody. Like Beyonce, she didn't tell anybody about it. But then when it was out, it was everywhere. This was like, we're not going to do any ads for this thing. We're not going to do anything to promote this record, and people just discover it on their own. It's like, that's what I think like you know it's one thing to like surprise people and drop the record but like that's fine but like once it's out you might maybe you want to like actually let people know that it's out it didn't didn't really make sense to me but 
you know, who, what do I know? You know. <laughs> so I've often wondered because I, I'm trying to, and I've been trying to think back to when that was being recorded and worked on. I don't mm-hmm. really remember there being much publicity about it. Um, I think maybe there had been interviews saying that there's stuff that they're working on, but there was no definitive release date of anything at all. Um, and, you know, this is a band that was really good at promoting stuff, whether it be, you know, I can remember the show before Significant Other came out and they played, or maybe it wasn't Significant Other, but regardless, playing a free show in Detroit, you know, with the big steel cage in front of it and all that shit. And, you know, this is a band that was really good at creating a buzz and even on the results may vary record the one without Wes you know they did an MTV thing where you could see them recording the process of recording that record in its entirety and the struggles so yeah. it's it's interesting that there's really no documentation and nothing really ever said about it it's you almost know, like everyone involved is almost ashamed to be working on it there's actually uh, YouTube videos there was a guy filming the whole process of the record there was a there was a camera running. If you you Google it, it's you you'll find the making of the Unquestionable Truth on YouTube. Um, there's actually a comic who's actually becoming pretty famous now. This guy Dean Del Rey. Uh, he he wasn't doing stand-up at the time. He was like a DJ at a at a strip club, and uh, he also had been had done some videography stuff um, with the Stones and with Jacob Dylan. Um, and uh, yeah, so he actually filmed. Uh, he was the videographer while we were in the studio the whole time. You'll you, you can actually see some stuff going on. There was there was other there was some some drama during that record um, that you know I don't need really need to. You could you you watch it and you'll see what's going on. Okay. There's definitely there's definitely some high drama during the re- making of the record uh, between band members. Arguably, or understandably, I. Th- think that's kind of how that time frame just kind of seems to be remembered um outside of that though like what was the process like what was it like working with that band because i mean the thing that's interesting to think about was i mean they were still sort of like a a really big band i mean the the record they had done before that put them on as like direct support for metallica on that summer sanitarium tour so i mean Mm -hmm. it's like they weren't a small band or like a band on the decline by any stretch of the imagination it was interesting. It was definitely interesting. Um, they were well. They 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 were done. They were broken up, and then they they got kind of forced back together by by the label or by the the old head of the label, um, uh, Jordan, who uh, had signed them to Flip. Flip. Flip, right? He was the head of Flip, and then he parlayed that into a, a VP at, at a Interscope uh, position or Geffen at the time. Um, so I think it was like you know I think everybody like wanted the 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 uh, the money train to keep rolling. You could feel the tension I in the air. I was gonna say you can feel it on the record, and I think it's what kind of contributes to the record having its raw sound that it does. Well, you know that that also both um, because well, I don't even think they list who's on the record because uh, yeah. that record is not John Otto on drums. It's Sammy Siegler who played drums on the first Glassjaw record. Here's a fun fact I just learned a couple of days ago, and I, as soon as I read this, I was like, holy shit, that makes so much sense. I didn't realize Shannon Larkin played on Worship and Tribute. Yes, he did. And as soon as someone said that, because I have always, 
I don't defend Godsmack as far as being the greatest band, but I always say like there's their drumming is always Shannon's phenomenal. Shannon, Shannon's a badass. Yeah. And it's like you know when you look back and so connected because you know Ross knew Shannon from Amen. Yep. And that's you know he had Shannon play drums on that. Watch that off again off the right. Watch the video. You'll see it. Like John was literally they kicked him out, yeah. and yeah. we got Sammy. Like when we were in pre-production, we we they kicked him out. We got Sammy to come in and play Ross knowing Sammy. We got Sammy to play drums in pre-production, and then it worked. Then we started tracking the record up at the site, which is up in northern San Francisco, north of San Francisco in San Rafael, uh, with Sammy on drums. But then John came up to the studio, like during the it was. This is what I meant about the high drama. John came up while we were tracking with Sammy was outside and this is on the video you'll see it this is on the video and like wes is like talking how he doesn't want to see john again and john's outside the window he's like i hear you dude he's like <laughs> go home like no dude watch i'm telling you watch this thing so yeah so it's it was kind of interesting and it kind of made me start thinking i mean you had kind of talked about you know you just kind of made the comment that i mean there really wasn't a whole <laughs> i mean what packaging i do remember on the record was slim and none it was almost like a digipack type thing where it's just a cd the cover and the, it was the, a digipack and you didn't even really notice that it was a limp it was like very muted colors yeah like shepherd fairy looking kind of yeah. uh artwork and like very um it was almost like they didn't want to put their name on it nor did they want to have anyone's name attached to it his name's not on it my name's not on it like yeah it's it's crazy yeah. um well, I guess you're not getting any of the perpetuity or the royalties from uh, me streaming that record. <laughs> nope. um, but the interesting thing when thinking about that and as a whole was with the lack of promotion that was done on that record and almost potentially on purpose, as someone who spends the same amount of time working on a record as the band does, uh, as far as the actual time invested in it, do you get bummed when an album comes out and doesn't maybe do as well as you had hoped or thought it would? Yeah, I mean, you kind first. of... Uh, when you when you really spill your guts on on a process, you know, but that's that's you you have to go in it. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like, not really, but it's almost like going to Vegas with you know, you know some money. It's like you have to go in there expecting you're going to lose, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. You know, and if you if it comes out. I mean, it's not the. I can't. It's not really the same because it's like it's a different thing. It's art. It's not like just throwing your money away. You know what I mean? But you have to always. You got to remember that there's so many elements. You know, it's always like if everybody who who made the the best possible record ever, how many records that you have that you're like, oh my god, I'm like the only person that knows about this record. This record's fucking awesome, and like nobody knows about it. Like there's, there's a, I could think of a handful of records. Like, my God, how many people g- love that refuse record? And, t- you know, like, and like back in like night, like late nineties where nobody knew the fuck about it. And then like over the years it grew and grew and grew and grew. But like, it's just like, it's, that's like a thing. Like they, they just, you gotta, there's so many elements that will make, that can make or break a record. And like, you have to do your part. I mean, that's the thing. The main thing is if you're happy with your result and you know you did your best and like, man, this you listen to it and you're like, this is a fucking great record. I mean, like one of the records that I did that I'm most proud of that like didn't sell very well is that Poison, that last Poison the Wall record that I did. It's one of my favorite records like that I produced. It's definitely still in my top 
in my top favorites. I love the record. I just think it's, uh, I'm, I'm happy with it sonically. I love the performances. It just, there was, it was just a great creative, just such a emotional, like creatively fulfilling project for me that it just had some, like so much depth and so much, like the, there's so much weight to the record. And like, it's just like, you still listen to it and you like, and it's great songs and like, you know, but you know, it, they put out and it kind of fell on deaf ears and like they, you know, they, they're, they're, they got, um, like they tour with Madball, which is like nothing, not to, not to diss Madball, not even close, but like they evolved from, you know, opposite of December. Like they evolved so much over the years right, and like right. all only that's all the people wanted to hear was the chuggy stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's not one chuggy thing on the entire record, that one or versus the record before it. There's like nothing like it's like, you know, it's all like weird spaghetti Western soundscapey stuff. And it's awesome. And like, you know, but as long as you you do your part and you make something that you're proud of, you know, if it sells, that's obviously great, you know, but, you know, again, so many things. What what happens like you 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 get I've I've just I've been part of it. It's like, oh man, this record's fucking awesome. This record's awesome. And then like, you know, like even like what happened with the story of the year record that I did. Like they put it out on Maverick, which was literally the label was dead before the record was released. Like yeah. they were rid of the label. And it got folded into Warner Brothers and like and then all of a sudden your your A and R person's different. And like the person who like championed the record, it was into the record, now it's under now it's under the purview of somebody else. Right. And right. now this person has no invested has no invest emotional investment in the record because he wasn't a part of the process to begin with. So he doesn't push it the right way. He doesn't know what singles should be pushed. He doesn't know, you know, like any of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, the record can die on the vine that way. Yeah. You know, like, you know what happened with Saves the Day, putting out in Reverie, they put it out on DreamWorks, and DreamWorks, the label had folded a month later. Like, you know, it's that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's uh, kind of like you touched on uh, Refused and kind of got me wanting to talk about that because I've said on the podcast a handful of times that, you know, the thing that was interesting about Refused is basically that was a flop when it came out. People, it wasn't Fan the Flames of Discontent, so people didn't like it. And then the band basically toured very nominally on it and the they shows opened, weren't very good and then they broke up and they then it's like case and broke up yeah and then it's yeah. like you know the thing that you know i was telling uh nate and ivy uh nate from finch uh yeah. you know i was talking about that because they're my favorite record of theirs is say hello to sunshine and everyone hates that record um exactly and so it was one of those things where i said you know i think say hello to sunshine is basically finch's uh shape of punk to come like it came out people were expecting the record before it it wasn't that and then basically due to infighting some other bullshit like the band ends up calling it a day and then 10 years later people go like oh my god this record is phenomenal you know and it's like kind of like too little too late but i mean unfortunately finch came back and people still just wanted what it is to burn sadly and refuse get a second crack at it although i still think it's funny when electric came out everyone's like this record sucks it's not what shape of punk to come and it's like it kind of, it's actually more Shape of Pump to Come than you think it is, because Shape of Pump to Come wasn't a set sound. Like, it's all over the place, and so is this record. And I think maybe in ten more years, people are going to be like, wow, this record's really good. I get it. <laughs> it's kind of the shitty thing sometimes about understanding, like, what a band's doing or, like, the little nuances that make it them. 
they just have to become like vampires and become like immortal so they can like outlive it so every record they they do a record and have to wait 10 years every time for to, for people to appreciate it it's like i remember when they going to see them in detroit on the, the basically the reunion tour when they said it was just going to be a one and done tour and then they were going to go away again and weirdly enough i was standing next to jeff from at the time still in dillinger and like i was kind of bummed because like my friends are all getting like shit housed, and i'm like i kind of wish i could too to like get lost in the moment of it because i was too self-aware i was like i'm never gonna see this band ever again and i, I have want to and i ha- yeah and so it's like i have the more vivid memories but i didn't have the experiences like my friends who were like oh my god when they played blank i was going ape shit in the pit and it's like yeah i don't have that i just stood next to jeff and was just kind of like oh my god this is awesome holy shit i can't believe i'm seeing this band <laughs> like just for the entirety of their set <laughs> um kind of switching gears though you've uh worked with two michigan two michigan bands that i can recall off the top of my head uh you worked with wilson mm-hmm. which chad has said this and i kind of want to get it from your mouth so he had said it was actually the reason that you ended up working with him was because of a really drunken tweet i sent you one night really late at night uh and i kind of had because i haven't seen you post was anything. that you that wait was, was that well that's definitely it okay I okay literally, you literally told me about the band and i never heard them and then i just <laughs> and, oh my god that's you that's crazy i remember i got a tweet from somebody and i went to check out the band and then and then i contacted chad yeah that was me I was oh, that's awesome. I that's was so- like really shit housed, and then I was up drinking still, and uh, I was going through my Twitter and saw that, and I was like, oh, God, "That's really funny." But what's interesting is, and kind of to the point of that, Wilson at that point was more or less just a, a, a what I'd like to call a nationally touring local band. I mean, they weren't signed; they did everything DIY. They got mm-hmm. on some decent tours with bands that were a little bit bigger than them at the time, but were sort of at the same level they were, really. Right. And you, from what I remember, put out a tweet that's like, I want to work with the next up-and-coming band that people don't know about. People that mm-hmm. like are going to take attention, or going to cause people to pay attention to them. Now, I haven't really seen you do something like that since. You know, I, I, funny enough, I was just talking to Jesse Cannon the other day, and he was like, he told me he said I, sh- I probably should do that. I just want to like I I'm, I was actually gonna put out another tweet like Hey, send me new material, send me new music. I want to I want to find another band. You know like so yeah. I actually had a, had a few things, but I just uh, I mean like even on the recording that I the recordings the earlier recordings that I had just the energy just came through. It was pretty undeniable right away, and and Chad's vocals. That was pretty much it. It was just. The interesting thing was on that record that wasn't Chad, on the standing on the real EP. They had a different singer who then decided when they were going to start playing shows that they were that he couldn't he wasn't going to do it, so they got Chad, and Chad sounds so similar enough. I mean, they had a uh, version I think of uh, Susan Jane that they did the video for and re-recorded his vocals on that, but that okay. was I think at the only. Uh, maybe at that point they might have had one or two other songs. I mean, I think uh, they sent me some stuff, and they I'm, were I'm working on stuff. Uh, I think the stuff they sent me was the only stuff that I heard was, the, was with Chad's vocals. I don't think it was a different vocalist. Because hmm. the I only thing be... they had put out at the at that point, as far as a record, was the standing on the real EP, and that wasn't Chad. Right. Um, no, I I, I listened, got found like the, the online stuff. I think it was they sent me stuff. Okay. Um, but what was interesting, and what kind of I had wondered too, is you know with them having 
because I think it's like three or four songs on what would become Full Blast Fuckery were songs that had been around since the band was a band, really, and was a live staple mm-hmm. in their set. So what's it like recording, re-recording something that people made like you know because i know bands do that sometimes like here's a you know a demo or a b-side of something and then you know you'll go back a year or two later when you're putting out a new record and re-recording it officially right so what what kind of goes into doing a re-record and kind of changing some some things around well it depends you know and i've always said it that sometimes the best producing you can do is to know when to leave something the fuck alone you know (laughs) For sure. It's just like, it might just be like, you know, I mean, it might be, sometimes it's like, okay, well, yeah, maybe this part, just something bothered me. I don't know what it is, but let's see if we can, let's see if, like, I like what this is, but let's see if we can, let's try and see what we can do to make it better. If we can't make it better, I'm not going to just make a change for the sake of I'm the producer and I have to put my thumbprint on something. So it's not about that. Sometimes it's just about, you know, making sure the performances and the energy feels right. And just definitely got that. get the Sonics better, and that's it. You know what I mean? It was interesting to to see your your approach on on their music because at the time, with you having worked with Etid, and they actually opened for Etid at uh, Lansing, and I remember hearing because I couldn't go because I had a house show I was I had booked, and I tried to get out of. <laughs> And uh, my friends that went, basically, they were like, you know, we've seen Eats it a shitload of times. And they were like, that's the only time I've ever seen Keith come out and be like, well, holy fuck, that band before us, huh? Like, we're actually going to have to try tonight. Like, yeah. like, not that we don't ever, but, like, usually, like, we're not worried about a local opener, like, making mm-hmm. us a run for our money. So, you know, it's it was interesting. And I always said it was, you know, I think you would have done a really good job recording them. And so it was very serendipitous that, like, I always had kind of said that. And then, you know, I think a handful of months later, you make that tweet and I just go, oh, check out my friend's band. And then it happened. Um, awesome. So that's interesting. I'd love to get a chance to work with them again. I know they're they're doing a new record out, out in L.A. with somebody right now. Uh, they're doing it with the dude from the Exes. Right. I can't remember that's his it. name. So they kind of uh... – so in working with some of the various bands that you have and with technology yeah. kind of becoming what – so readily accessible to have recording gear. I mean, even to the point of what I'm doing on my end, uh, haphazardly, <laughs> but do you sometimes feel that some people, some musicians are, are more equipped to maybe be a producer than an actual like musician? Uh, yes and no. I mean, the prob- part of the thing to me though, is like self-producing, to me, I don't think ever. I mean, there's there's a there's a there's some people that can do it, but I think there's always going to be a value in someone having an outside, and just you know, someone someone who you respect having a and who's creative on their own aspect, um, in their in their own right, having an outside opinion or an outside perspective on on another band's music. Generally, bands that self-produce, it's you know, I mean, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to produce myself if I'm writing songs. Like, maybe I, not I to want, the point of self-producing your own band, but like, someone's in a band and very much like yourself, where it was like, uh, you can see that they have a, a, a good 
said it like head on them about production and stuff and maybe being like hey maybe this band thing isn't where you should be like kind of shift your your priorities and, and go down this road and, and see where it takes you absolutely there's you know there's lots of people but you know there's so much there's so much more to it than just the knobs it's it's about people and, and working relationships and being able to navigate the minefield of, of <laughs> five creative people and sometimes clashing ideas or clashing personalities and still trying to keep it all together and steer the ship in the right direction. There's, there's that whole aspect of it too. I know, I know plenty of people who would be super talented as far as doing, you know, being an actual like production as far as being like musical savants or whatever, but they're complete, you know, socially inept and <laughs> people and, you know that that's an that's that's a huge aspect of it having a temper and not having or or being impatient you have to be so patient to do this really yeah you know you know some people i know like like again they're you know amazing brilliant talented but they have no patience or they have no social skills or you know what i mean or don't know how to like calm someone down if they're you know going spiraling out of control like with with anger or or emotion or whatever and you're like you know there's there's all that stuff and that stuff came to me over the years that's years and years i'm doing it 25 plus years you know it's years of experience you know a lot of that stuff came way later on in my career you know before it was just like sheer will and blunt force like this is how it that kind of thing, and and like I said, the the when I was saying before about the sometimes the best producing you you can do is no one to get the fuck out of the way and let the process happen, and I learned that it took years to to figure that out, you know, that's something that that's years and years of experience, all that kind of other stuff, all that un, you know, when somebody like still people in my family don't really understand what I do for a living, and they're like, what do you do? And it's like. Well, you know, the textbook definition is, yes, yes, you're supposed to f- give a finished master on time and in, in, under budget. That's it. Right. But how how that gets there, <laughs> you know, an infinite number of avenues and paths and twists and turns that, that go along the way. And for you to be able to actually steer the ship and keep it from capsizing, you know, that's a big part of it. Speaking of uh, talking – managing different people and so forth I, I had reached out to a few of the people who had been on the podcast that i know that had have worked with you and asked if they had any interesting stories or anything uh Uh-oh. that i could bring up and so um something two of the things that i thought were kind of interesting out of the things i got back uh josh newton said that he was surprisingly to me he was worried about working with you because he heard that you were especially hard on bass players <laughs> is this this true <laughs> Uh, well, I am a bass player, so yeah. I think Newt was also, you know, it's funny because, you know, because I had played bass on the Big Dirty. Um, so he was, I think maybe there was that element of it, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just thought that was kind of interesting because it's like a dude who has been playing for as long as he has and the caliber yeah. of musicianship that he has. It's like, I don't see why he would be so. I know. A little, I, bit, a little bit worried about it. Um, And then when I talked to Greg Thomas from Misery Signals, uh, he was saying that when you were doing, I think, the mastering on uh, mixing, mixing, sorry, mixing on Absent Light, he was saying Mm -hmm. that he was he would get kind of frustrated because you wouldn't keep the same like mix 
throughout everything. Like you would start almost all from scratch, like every single track. And he'd well, be like, time, but you know, no, it's there's, I mean, not really, but, but yeah, I don't do like, you know, I like records that like, you know, it still sounds cohesive, but, and it still all sounds like they belong together. But what's the point of having the same mix on every song? It's boring. It's funny. I think I noticed that on one of the static lullaby records on uh, the self-titled, I think I noticed a couple of songs have a, a few variances throughout. I mean, again, they're, they're all going to sound like they belong together, but like, why would you, you know, Again, it's my problem with a lot of modern production because it's all done all inside Pro Tools, all in the box, using the same drum samples, using the same mix templates. It's like it's it's just, you know, no no record that, that I grew up listening to in the 80s, 90s, whatever was like that. Why, why are they like that now? Because it's just I think it's the lazy way out. Right. Like, you know, people that just produce records on their laptop, it's just like. You know, you can still vary it up even with that. I just think people are scared and they just go, oh, this works. I'm going to just stick with this. And it's like that doesn't make for that doesn't make for repeat listenability on a record. The best records, like you go go to the Refuse record. Every song is radically different. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. something something speaking of radically different. Something that I've I love cover songs when they're done well. <laughs> one of my favorite covers that I love to show because it's it's one of my favorite records of all time and it, this usually shocks people because they don't assume I listen to stuff like this is Static Lullaby's cover of Let Go by Frau Frau. Oh, yeah. Now, good one. It's a great song and I think obviously at the time Garden State was big so that was the big single off of it so there's a little bit more mainstream ability to that like where people would recognize it potentially but something that was interesting to me about it and thinking is with the very the, the very clients that you've worked with over the decades is imaging heap someone or that record in particular like something that like you yourself like are a fan of and if so like have you ever seen like how imaging heap does what she does because it's I had never heard of Frau Frau or Imogen Heap until we did that cover. Okay. And, and I delved into it after the fact and got into it. You know what I mean? I mean, I listen to lots of different diverse things, but like the, um, yeah, I mean, I had to like get, uh, we did the thing, you know, we did the song and then I, I literally had to like download it. I downloaded it on iTunes like to, to say, okay, we got to, let's let me hear this. And then like, and realize that the main riff that they used was just like that little ancillary bass line that you don't even realize what it is, yeah. but then you make a heavy guitar out of it, and it's just like it's so cool. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that was a that was a fun that was a fun cover to do. I always wondered how long it took to just kind of do a lot of the little nuances that are in it, and kind of like you said, like there's the bass line that's happening that's in the really, background. Right. That was really. That's all Dan. Like Dan's. Uh. You know. He's really, really uh, talented, um, talented musician. That was definitely his doing, you know. Yeah, that was you, his style for sure. If you never have and you have any interest in the behind the scenes of stuff of things, there's a and I've talked about this a couple of times on this podcast too. There's a DVD of the making of Ellipsis, which was the record that image the solo record Imogene Heap did after right around right. after right after that, yeah, yeah. and. Yep. 
the way she goes about making stuff will just blow your fucking mind like there's like a scene where she takes like a stick because she puts her recording studio in like her old parents house which is like a weird like silo barn type thing and so she's just like like i remember very vividly at one point she's running up and down the stairs with like a wood stick and just making noise against the the lattice shit in between like the beams in between the the stairwell and then takes that something else something else then throws it into like some program loops it all backwards plays it like splices it up and then turns into this thing and then she like plays it in the song and you're just like holy shit what the fuck like how does your mind work like that and it's one of those that like i i know she has a huge fan base but it's still one of those that like like you were saying like what's a record that a lot of people don't that you love that a lot of people don't know of and to me like it's always her stuff like she's very like on the level of bjork as far as just like otherworldly like to me and her working with the dude from uh eurythmics on that fra record just i mean it's like she basically does all that kind of stuff on her own so i don't see why she needed to to work with him but oh Dave Stewart's great he's super creative but that record is like that's the record i always like lean into right around this time of year for us in the winter time like it's just a perfect winter record so much depth and nuance yeah um so kind of winding down with the last few questions i have uh looking back on your career as a whole now what's something that stands out to you that still surprises you like has happened <laughs> I never think about it, but honestly, really all of it, when I really think about how fortunate I've been, you know, just the fact that I got to do this for a living for, you know, 25 plus years, like I haven't ever worked a real job, quote unquote, you know what I mean? No. I mean, you know, so it's so funny again, like when I, so I was just, when I was home the other day and somebody, a pair of people came to the house to, to fix something. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot you guys were coming today. I was like, yeah, I just woke up, you know, and it was like 9 o'clock in the morning or whatever. And the guy's like, oh, it must be nice. I'm like, yeah, well, I usually go to work at like noon. He was, yeah, that's, that's cool, huh? And I was like, yeah, but I work till like midnight. So, yeah, I kind of had figured based on your, your email exchanges that you stay up late. <laughs> stay up late. Because <laughs> you're, you're basically probably going to bed right around the time I'm getting up to go to work, plus with the three hour time difference. But, yep, exactly. Um, what are some uh, bands? Oh, good. No, but it's uh, it's. I, I'm just you know, I like I said, I never forget how how lucky I am that I get to do this. You know, I just I do a record and like you know I've I've had a, a, a the privilege of being a, being a part of like a lot of records that a lot of people seem to care about. So it's it's that's that's what stands out to me. It's just like that it happened at all is kind of amazing you know yeah what are some bands that you would love to work with that you haven't oh there's a number of them (laughs) but i mean to me one of my like the ungettable get to me still is uh ryan adams oh i was almost thinking smashing pumpkins for some reason no i mean that would be great too but i (laughs) I would. I, I. I'm a massive Ryan Adams fan. I love him. Uh, he's just such a prolific songwriter, and you know, two records in particular. I mean, of course, everybody's always going to say Heartbreaker, but that, that's for sure. And then Love Is Hell too. That record. It was well two EPs, but then they wound up putting it as, as a full length record together. Um, 
and and lots of records, but those two in particular. But like, I would just love if I could somehow ever work with him. <laughs> you want to work your magic again? <laughs> Reach out to him and get, get get us together, John. Come on. I you know the internet's a very weird thing. I've been trying to put the bug out there to get Ice T to come on here, and. Yeah. Uh, He's been liking things that I send out within a few, like a couple of minutes of me tweeting them. So the internet's a crazy place. So maybe I'll just slowly bear hug the shit out of Ryan Adams and be like, yo, yeah, go work with Ebbets. Here's like a laundry list of like what he's done. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, that would be one of those moments, you know, I mean, the cure was another moment that, you know, obviously was like, it took me, a good, it took me a good solid two weeks to get, to get, uh, to get used to it. I don't think I could look Robert Smith like in the face. I don't, I just wouldn't be I like, mean, I dude, could... it literally took me, I mean, I did obviously, but like, it took me like two, about two solid weeks before I actually felt comfortable. Like it was like freaked out for like the first, <laughs> like the first week we're there. Let me, let me, I don't know if I said this on anybody else's podcast, but the first like week I was there, this is when I was still living in Jersey. Okay. So we're at, we're at in, uh, in the studio, they have, um, they have a, a, a like a cafeteria. They cook for the bands at Olympic. Okay, so I'm at me, Ross, Jesse, Cannon. We're at our table with the Cure, and we all basically there was no assigned seats, but we always everybody sat in the same seats every day. Like Robert sat next to me every day. Like like Steve, could you pass the foul sauce, please? And I'd look at him like, uh, okay, here. Like what am I doing here? Like you know, like it's like one of those moments. Like so, where I'm at, at the table. The Cure and us are at our table. Eric Clapton and his band are at another table. And going back to what you were just saying, Bjork is at her table with Spike Stent because she was working on that that uh, acapella record. Yeah, she did. And yeah, <laughs> so I'm like looking around, like, what the hell am I doing here? What the fuck is going on? I'm just some schmo from Jersey. Like, what the fuck is happening right now? What is life? Did you, you know, ever get to actually hang out with Clapton at all or talk to him? I passed him in the hallway once and it was total Wayne's World moment. I like <laughs> on the way to the bathroom and he's like, hey. I'm like, hey, Eric Clapton. Okay. But it, was, it was literally that. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, is there an album looking back that you'd like to go back and redo if you could? And if so, uh, what would it be? <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't even – i don't know that's 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 one i don't know i i don't know i don't know if i would, would say that there, there's things there's moments there's things about like remixes and stuff like that that i would think of you know when i look back at um uh the second snapcase record i did design short emotion we had like we spent like we had like a month to make that record and that was like a lot of time back then but i felt like maybe i felt a little complacent on that record i mean a lot of people still love, tell me they love that record but there's something there was something about progression through unlearning to me that was like just like kind of the perfect storm and i feel, feel like maybe i i caught myself overthinking things a little bit on that album I don't know, but I mean, I look back to it now, and it's still there's still lots of lots of great moments to it too, you know. And then 
lastly, this is where I usually ask and surprise the guest by going, I always play the episodes out to a song. What would you like me to play it out to? Oh, my God. <laughs> and that's usually the response I get, too. Oh, I don't know. Do you mean, does it mean, it, does it have to be something that I did, or does nope. it have to be? Nope, it could be anything. Oh, my God, are you kidding me? So, I don't know. <laughs> what do, so, on, you know, your, on your flight home, put, what were you listening let's, to? Let's put it, what's that? I was going to say, on your flight home, what were you listening to? Like, what what's something you've been, like, jamming the last couple of days? Or probably uh, the record you're mixing. <laughs> yeah, it was actually that. I was checking mixes on the, the Devil Driver, and I'm finishing. Is that not done still? It's actually done now, technically, I think. I the like master. I, like I was working on that for forever. And I generally do. When I'm out of the studio, I mean, it takes me a good – I have to be away from music for for a while before I li- I'll listen to music. Like, I listen to podcasts in the car. Yeah. I don't Same. really listen to music much anymore, sadly. I listen to music well, plenty of times, but I mean, like, if I'm in the studio 12 hours, what am I going to do? Listen to more music? And I have to listen to a podcast. I listen to your podcast. I listen to, I use Overcast and I just have a bunch of different podcasts I listen to. That's what I listen to. I used to listen to talk radio back in the day, like sports talk radio, like in New York at WFAN. When I was driving home from Tracks East, it was like, that was what I listened to. Because I need, like, just talking and, like, I need a, like, you know, something else lens to get sorbet i need the palate cleanser you know what i mean it's like get out of the music no music like talk that's fine so <laughs> that's what i generally do you know, on the plane like so i don't have a lot i don't keep music downloaded in my phone mm-hmm. so but i keep the podcast so i have like i just have all the pot tons of podcasts and i just listen to them so yeah i was like shocked i don't even i would assume it was josh newton's episode that you found or saw or something because i probably tagged him and and then from there, but I was like, when you sent me the thing, I was like, how the fuck did you even find my podcast? Well, you know what? I think it was the Wilson one. I first, that's when I first, it was either Wilson or, or, um, or TJ. Ah. I think it was Wilson. I think it was actually Wilson from the podcast. I had, dude, I didn't put two and two together about that. The, you were the guy who did it. That's awesome. I love that. Um, Small claim to fame, I guess. But, uh, I don't know if you want to play out. I guess let's play out Dillinger just because they're they're ending. <laughs> um, why don't you play uh, When I Lost My Bet, which is one of my favorite ones that I did with the band. Do you have like a little bit of a backstory on the recording of that? Um, there's no real backstory on it. I mean, it was just like I remember hearing like the demo and just thinking it to me. It's like it's one of their as far as their quote unquote crazy songs. It's one of my favorite ones they've ever done. I mean, it's not even that crazy of a song, but there's just something about it. Like, just uh, if you want to encapsulate everything that Dillinger is in like one song, as far as like the more like the more frantic stuff, like that. That's like the almost like their perfect Story. song they've ever done, as far as that goes. So, awesome. why don't you play out with that? Just just to to give tribute to to Dillinger and their final three shows coming up. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. Sorry, this was a little uh, way over an hour. Um, that's totally fine. I had a great time. It flew by. So I mean, that's a testament to 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 you. Like you know, it doesn't feel like I'm looking at the clock. It just just kept on looking up. I'm like, oh well, look at that. I almost often, two. Hours. I often wonder if people are just like, Jesus Christ, this kid just keeps going. <laughs> 
I don't mind. I hope I wasn't too rambly and, and I made sense with what I was the points I was making, but So that was my conversation with Steve Evitz. Long winded as it typically is with me sometimes when I get with somebody who also enjoys talking. Um a lot of great stories there about working with various bands and kind of how Evitz approaches production and, and just working with other creative individuals as a whole. Uh it was kinda interesting to hear him at the end, uh realize and me telling or asking i should say uh the story about how he ended up working with wilson but it was really cool to find out that uh you know man of his word on something like that you know sometimes i I wonder when some of these bigger producers do like these search contests and so forth if it's if it's not a way just kind of to to see who's out there for sure but that maybe they haven't already predetermined somebody as far as uh, someone they've been eyeballing and, and whatever. Um, in this day and age, you just never know. But it was really cool to see Ebbets, uh be so honest about working with a lot of things. Uh, the Limp Bizkit thing, was, like I said in the intro, was really fucking crazy. Um, as someone who kind of prides himself on scouring the internet for a shitload of information <laughs> on any of my favorite records, uh, it was really surprising to see that there was actually footage of them recording the unquestionable truth and it gets kind of crazy if you really watch it like there's some stuff with uh i mean as we were kind of talking about in there like there's really no mention about who did anything on that record um like wes isn't really you know stated that he's on the record and it was like really the first thing he had done upon rejoining the band i didn't know that there was a different drummer on that record but it does kind of sound a little different than than typical John Otto type stuff. Um, I mean, that that was just a really tumultuous time for that band from what I remember. Uh, obviously, with people kind of coming in and out and a lot of infighting from, you know, watching the that MTV uh, making of a record thing that they did back then, like just, you know, the struggles of having to put out a record and working with new people and probably, you know, just everything involved in that um so to to have Evitz kind of be like yo there there is something out there that kind of showcases what it was like when we were working on that record it was really cool so i strongly urge everybody to go to just google uh or go on youtube and just put in the unquestionable truth making of limp biscuit or some some variation of those words uh and like i said it's like a three or four part uh little mini series and it's kind of a trip to watch um especially given the fact that like i said earlier nobody really there was no promo behind that thing, and seemingly no one even knows that it exists. Uh, so it's really interesting to just kind of see this thing that was created sort of in a vacuum uh, and see all the, the kind of inner going-ons with that band. Um, interestingly enough now, over the last uh, little bit of me editing this podcast episode, uh, it is now booked for my trip to L.A. to go see 18 Visions. Uh, a band that I've been wanting to see for a while, uh, a band that had broken up, and a band that now recently in the past, this past year, has gotten back together. Uh, I made a post a couple of, probably about a week or so ago at this point, making the case that my wife and I have decided to do some trips based on going to shows, and because, I mean, going around and traveling, I mean, you just kind of inevitably do the same thing, you know, going to try to eat at different places, going to go to the local watering holes, go see some other things, but sometimes, like, you just kind of get stuck in the rut of doing that, so we decided to try and 
go based on going to see shows because we have a mutual love of music and going to see bands and so forth so uh we had a lot of fun this past year going to see various on various road trips going to see different shows uh most recently like i said uh, a couple podcasts uh going down to boston taking a train to rhode island to go see case raw deciding super last minute basically the day of that we're going to rent a car go to connecticut or yeah hartford and go see warp tour and go see a friend of mine frank uh who's been on this podcast um I know it was just fun to kind of go do that and so that's what we're going to try to do this this upcoming year and so far we basically have two trips that i've booked uh today so we're going to go see 18 visions and uh james according to the instagram post i made where i said if i bring my podcast stuff will we do the com- will we do a chat with him and uh he said yeah so i reached out to him pretty much as soon as we booked the uh the trip and i let him know that uh I am, in fact, coming out to California to go see him. So hopefully we will be getting him on in the early part of next year. And I booked, <laughs> I bought tickets to a show, uh, the Eated Christmas show. Uh, and it isn't until this time, December next year. Uh, but I already bought my tickets. Uh, the show that they did this past weekend looked like a fucking blast. And it's a 3,000 cap venue. And it is already a third sold out. They did a thousand pre-sale tickets uh, at a cheaper price, which one of two of which I purchased uh, right as soon as they went on sale. And so this thing's potentially going to be sold out by the time it comes. Potentially even 11, 12 months out. So uh, just goes to show how crazy the Eat Sid fans really are, uh, myself included. Uh, and they are going to be coming around in March with Motionless and White here to Grand Rapids. So hopefully maybe if I play the cards right, maybe I can get uh, Andy back on here or get Jordan or Mitch or any of the guys from the band and, and just kind of talk a little bit about what the uh, shitmas show is. They kind of have affectionately referred to it, uh, what that has meant to them um, and so forth. So really looking forward to uh this upcoming year i got a lot of guests uh i'm gonna kind of keep on the on the download for a hot minute but january is already looking like it's gonna be hot one right out the gates with some of the guests i've got lined up um all of that being said if you would like to follow myself or evitz you can follow steve uh he's very easy to find on instagram and twitter it's just simply at steve evitz simple enough uh if you would like to follow my partners over at mosh pit nation you can find this podcast on moshpitnation.com i'm going to be down in like the interview reviews area but that is a direct link to my podcast uh, itself uh so love what mosh pit nation's doing uh i'm going to try to plug some of the local shows here in the michigan area over the you know next year or so or as long as i do this uh and just kind of talk about shows that are coming because potentially i'm going to be getting guests on that correlate to the shows that are happening here locally for me. Uh, if you would also like to follow Mosh Pit Nation on social media as well, uh, Facebook, it's Mosh Pit Nation West MI. Uh, if you would like to follow them on Twitter or Instagram, it's at Mosh Pit Nation on both of those. If you would like to follow me, you can follow me at Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at John's Entitled Podcast. You can tweet at me at John's Entitled Pod, or you can email me at John's Entitled Pod at gmail.com. As I said in the intro, and I just kind of want to reiterate here right before I get out of here, uh, if you enjoyed any of these stories that you heard Steve telling me, uh, there were some that are uh, borrowed off from two other podcasts. Uh, those, once again, are Doc Coyle, formerly of 
God forbid. Uh, he's got a new band with Tommy Vexed uh, called Bad Wolves. Uh, they are poised to do some big things uh, very early in this next year. They're on almost all of the Danny, Danny Wimmer festivals that have been announced. Uh, I think they're on Carolina Rebellion, Rock on the Range, uh, Rocklahoma, I think. Uh, but definitely good to see Doc back in the the limelight of sorts uh, with a new band reinvigorated and I think between what him and Tommy are doing I think it's going to be a band really to watch Uh, so hopefully we can get one of those two dudes on this podcast Uh, definitely know that there's a lot of stories and so forth to tell Uh, but yeah Doc Coyle's got a podcast also check that out it's the X-Man podcast Uh, basically the the gist of that show is former bandmates or musicians of other bands so let's say like if you were to have Fallon Bowman on she would be ex Kitty. Uh, actually, I believe Morgan from Kitty was is on that show uh, at one point. So, a lot of great guests over there. Go check out his podcast. Check out the episode he did with Steve. There's a lot more, like a like I said, more of a definitive starting to now kind of a thing uh, as far as Steve's career. And it was a really good tool to use to kind of piggyback off of some of the things that were brought up in that uh, very like skimming the surface of uh the other one was the noise creators podcast uh that's more of evitz getting more into gear and so forth uh more of the actual ins and outs of producing so that should cover most everybody who has an interest in steve evitz uh hopefully you found this conversation great i as someone who's really admired steve's career over the last 20 some odd years uh, it was really great getting to talk to him and for him taking so much time to talk with me um I'm really looking forward to some of the projects he has that are coming out. Uh, it's pretty much, it's everywhere I've seen, so I'm not really like spilling the beans on this, but uh, he's got a like covers album that he was working on with Devil Driver that should be coming out soon. Uh, pretty much everything I've heard uh, from various podcasts that are talking about it, uh, it is going to be probably a very interesting record as far as some of the covers that the devil driver camp is involved with uh so i'm definitely looking to see what des does with some of the songs i think des made a comment on something on instagram or somewhere about how there's even some like country songs that they're covering so very interested to see what des and company pull out of their hats on that one uh without further ado we end these episodes with songs And it was very fitting that Steve picked Dillinger Escape Plan to end this episode out with, given the fact that he has worked with the band over the entirety of their career. I couldn't... (laughs) I felt kind of bad for doing this, and I know that Steve did it too, but uh, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. I mean, who knows if Dillinger's actually done? I mean, in the day and age, like 18 Visions, great example. They called it a day, they just came back, put out a phenomenal fucking record. Uh, I don't really know that bands ever truly are done until you know maybe there's a death or the whole band's gone or you know whatever but i think that there's always going to be interest in dillinger being around recording music touring whatever so to say that dillinger escape plan is done forever who knows but there's a long lasting legacy of music that they will have left behind if they end up do calling it a day forever and without further ado this is when i lost my bet by dillinger escape plan talk to you next week <laughs>